God, as we gather as your people, Lord, we declare that you are the matchless king of glory. God, we thank you that through Jesus we are citizens of your kingdom. And Lord, as citizens of your kingdom, we thank you that you've given us your word. Lord, your word shapes us into being your people. And so what I pray as we, as we turn our focus and our gaze upon you and your word, Lord, I pray that your voice through your word would be the dominant voice in our lives, that your voice would drown out all other voices. God, I pray that you'd give us a spirit of submission to this text, that you would help us, God, to surrender, Lord, to what you have to say to us in this passage. So spirit, I pray that you would illuminate hearts and minds, that you give us wisdom and understanding. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have been journeying uh, through 1 Corinthians for uh, almost a year and a half. We started this uh, in September of 2020, and it has been a very rewarding study. Uh, it's been challenging, it's been refreshing, hopefully it's been encouraging uh, for you. And uh, today's actually not going to be the last week. Next Sunday, uh, I'm going to spend the entire sermon doing some sort of, of review and basically highlighting our key takeaways and main themes that we've seen uh, throughout these 16 chapters. Uh, whenever we study a book, I try to do that as far as like the last Sunday, because so often we, we spend so much time studying a book of the Bible, and then once we're done, we kind of you know, push it off to the side, and then we're on to the next one, and we can forget some of the key learnings that the Lord showed us during our time in that book. And so we're going to spend next week kind of reviewing um, uh, these 16 chapters. I'm looking forward to uh, next week. But today, uh, we're going to look at these last few verses, and we're mainly going to focus on verses 13 and 14. Verses 15 through 24 are obviously inspired, uh, the part of God's word, but they are very specific to the church in uh, Corinth. Paul is uh, providing uh, kind of his final greetings, if you will, to the Corinthians. He's giving uh, some, some exhortations to submit to certain leaders at that church. He's providing greetings from other individuals, even other churches in Asia, and then he's giving his final expression of love for the Corinthians. That's basically a summary of 15 through 24, but I don't want to skip over uh, verses 13 and 14. These two verses contain five significant commands that serve as instructions on spiritual maturity. And spiritual maturity has been one of the main themes, if not the main theme, uh, of 1 Corinthians. That the Corinthians here thought that they were spiritually mature and they just weren't. They thought that they were godly. They thought that they were kind of on a different level spiritually. And Paul has been writing throughout 1 Corinthians to try to correct that. And so as he finally closes this letter, he gives the Corinthians kind of a last challenge with these five commands on how to be spiritually mature. And I want to pay close attention to these instructions because instructions can be misunderstood. I'm so thankful that we have instructions written down here because if you're like me, I tend to be a very visual learner. Like, I, I love to have something right in front of me so I can see it and digest it. I can't tell you how many times that my wife, Lindsay, has given me instructions on going to the grocery store, going to run an errand for her. I get to the grocery store, and because I didn't write it down, I show up there, and I forget the details of all that she asked me to get. Like, I get there, and I'm like, 
All right, I knew she wanted me to get like four tomatoes, but I approached there and there's all kinds of different tomatoes. And I'm overwhelmed, like, well, I don't know. And so I just kind of pick what I think is best because I didn't write it down. Now, we're not quite at this point in our marriage, but this is, I found this online. This is what a wife uh, wrote for her husband as he was going grocery shopping. She actually drew, I know it's a little blurry, but she's drawing the, the exact products that this you know, husband needs to go down, the exact aisle that he needs to go down. That'd be very helpful for me. And so uh, if, you're, if you're a wife here, you're like, man, this would be great for my husband. Hey, you know what? We want to have marriages that are healthy, that are thriving. And so err on over-communicating when you're giving instructions. See, instructions are very important. As the Apostle Paul is closing out 1 Corinthians, he is providing instructions on how to be spiritually mature. And I love this about Paul. Paul doesn't just tell us, be godly. He doesn't just say, be spiritually mature. No, he actually shows us how to be spiritually mature. And this morning, I want us to pay attention to these two verses at four instructions for spiritual maturity. Here's the first one found in verse 13. Paul says, be watchful. Be watchful. Other translations of this phrase is to be alert, to be on guard, to be awake. This phrase is used 22 different times throughout the New Testament. Every time, it's toward the Christian. Every time. That tells us that the Christian life must be a life of alertness. Now, this command here is not just a command to see. It's not just to to, to be watchful physically, but it's to understand what you are seeing. It's to discern what you are seeing. See, we must be discerning in understanding what's really going on both in our hearts and what's going on in the world around us, that we need to be aware, we need to evaluate what the adversary is actually doing in our midst. See, Paul is saying you, you can't live the Christian life in a state of apathy. You can't live the Christian life just going through the motions or spiritually sleepwalking. You, you've got to be alert. You've got to be on guard against the pressures the enchantments and the values of the world in which we live and the daily temptations that we face. Last week for Thanksgiving, I was on a plane with my family and it was just another reminder of how difficult it is to travel with three young kids. Uh, We were on the flight back and uh, we were basically just trying to survive with three young kids. I, I had the, 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 you know, the, the classic parent sweat where I'm like sweating through my shirt, just trying to keep Milo's 18 months just kind of controlled and not running up and down the aisles. But we're getting towards the end, and, and, and they tell us that we're about to land. Keep your seatbelts buckled. You, you can't leave your seat. And that landing process ended up being like 30 or 40 minutes and at one point, we just kind of kept circling. And the pilot is hearing something about the weather or about traffic there on the ground that he couldn't land. Well, of course, one of my kids, who will go unmentioned, had a bathroom emergency. <laughs> and when I mean emergency, I mean she is yelling 
and screaming, I've got to go, I've got to go, I've got to go. The whole plane can hear this. And so I'm in a dilemma here because you can't leave your seat, but I'm thinking no one in this plane wants to see what's about to happen. So, so I unbuckle, I, I stand up, and I'm about to take her to, the, to the, the bathroom in the back, and of course the flight attendant on the intercom calls me out and tells me to, to sit down. And I'm like, all right, I gotta obey my authorities here, so it, we'll see what happens, you'll see what happens. So I sat back down, and we just kind of kept circling. And they're hearing something from the air traffic controller about what's going on there, and there was weather issues, and so we just kept circling. My kid is crying, I'm gonna have an accident, I'm gonna have an accident. And we're just sweating, wondering what is going to happen. Well, she made it, she did great, she ended up holding it somehow, and once we landed, I rushed her back to the bathroom, everything was good. But I was thinking about that experience, and I think it's so interesting, the role of the air traffic controller. Like the air traffic controller has a lot of authority uh, as far as uh, what the pilots do, what, what they can and cannot do. Their, their job is, is really to, to prevent collisions, right? They're making sure that the, the flow of air traffic is as smooth as possible. They're talking to the pilots on uh, the radio. In some countries, they actually play the role of security and defense. It's actually oftentimes operated by the military. But bottom line, their job is to not let any planes go in or out without their permission. Now, I share that with you because what I think Paul is telling us here in verse 13 with the command to be watchful, to be alert, to be on guard, he is calling us to be the air traffic controller of our minds as we experience these various thoughts that want to fly in and they want to land and occupy the space that's in your mind and tell you how to live. Paul is telling us, be the air traffic controller. Do not allow any thought to come into your mind without your permission. Paul tells us something very similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and listen to this, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Paul is telling us here that the battle we face as we're watchful is not based on what we see physically with the flesh. The battle is up here in our minds. <clears throat> and our job is to take every thought captive by being watchful, being alert, being on guard, and recognizing those thoughts that want to fly in and they want to disrupt our spiritual maturity. Those thoughts of selfishness that want to fly in and say, it's about me, me, me. Those thoughts of jealousy, those thoughts of discontentment, those thoughts of lust and anger and bitterness, those things that want to come in here and impact the way that we need to be watchful. The reason why I think this is significant is because the thoughts that come into our mind that we submit to, that we believe, that we hold with convictions end up impacting our desires. What we know impacts what we long for. You do not desire that which you don't know. And so here impacts here. 
which ends up impacting the way that we live and the decisions that we make. Like you and I, we don't just make decisions randomly. We don't live randomly. We live based on what we desire and based on what we know. And so thoughts that come here funnel down into our desires, inform what we love, inform what we long for, which impacts the decisions that we make. So this is very important. And I want to just ask you the question, do you know how to take every thought captive? Do you know how to be watchful in your life? As you're listening to the news, do you know how to take thoughts captive? As you're scrolling on social media, as you're watching TV, as you're interacting with friends, as you're reading various articles, as you're as you're being bombarded with all kinds of thoughts throughout the day, do you know how to take thoughts captive? If you don't, let me just suggest two things of how to take thoughts captive. The first one, very obvious, but don't bypass this. The first encouragement I give you is to know the scriptures. Know the Bible. You cannot be watchful. You cannot be alert unless you know God's word. Paul tells us in Philippians 4, Verse eight, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, do what? Think about these things. Okay, so we're supposed to think about that list there. But how in the world do you know what is true, what is pure, what is lovely, and so on, unless you study God's word? You can't be watchful unless you know what to be watchful about. And so know this book, study this book, immerse yourselves in the Bible. Let God's word be the lens by which you see the world. Let God's word be the filter by which you process which thought to throw away and which thought to to savor. Let this book be the authoritative voice in your life, not the supplemental voice. Know the Bible. Secondly, another, I think, encouragement for you as we think about what it means to be watchful, take thoughts captive, and that is to embrace your vulnerability. Embrace your vulnerability. What I mean by that is for us to accept and to own the reality that you could fall into sin at any moment. I know that sounds strange, But I think one of the most dangerous thoughts to believe as a Christian is to believe that I'm too strong spiritually to fall into sin. Pride comes before the fall. Pride comes before destruction. And I know in my own life, I am most vulnerable when I am least aware of just how truly vulnerable I am. And so I'm encouraging this morning not to be fearful of temptations, but I'm encouraging you to be aware that all of us have weaknesses. All of us have blind spots. All of us have tendencies towards different temptations. And I want to encourage you to be watchful, to be alert, and to be aware of those. In fact, the author of Hebrews puts it this way. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. In other words, you and I, we don't drift towards holiness, we drift away from holiness. 
We don't stumble into godliness. We stumble into sin, right? So this, this first step that Paul's giving us as far as instructions on how to be God, so important, so helpful in directing our lives towards godliness and spiritual maturity. Be watchful. Well, the second step here in spiritual maturity, also found in verse 13, and that is to stand firm in the faith, to stand firm. This phrase here means to be steadfast, to be unwavering. We actually have seen this phrase a couple of times. In chapter 15, in fact, we saw it um, really occur two different times. Paul uses this phrase, and he, he bookends chapter 15. He talks about standing firm in verse 1 in the gospel, and then he uses it in the last verse of chapter 15 to be steadfast and to be immovable. But really, we see this command to stand firm all over Paul's writings. Here are just a couple of examples. He says in Philippians 4, one, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Okay, so stand firm in the Lord. But then Philippians 1.27 says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So stand firm in unity. And then Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So stand firm in the freedom of Christ. We also see this in Ephesians 6, a key text here. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and so on. This, that's a key passage as far as understanding what it means to stand firm. And I think for us, if we're really trying to pay close attention to the instruction here on being spiritually mature, we have to understand what it means to put on the armor of God. And there's so much in that passage, but one of the things that I love about Ephesians 6 is that the source of our strength is not found in our ability to put on the armor of God perfectly, but the source of our strength is found in the Lord himself. Verse 10 is key there. He says, be strong in the Lord and in his might, not in putting on the armor perfectly. It comes from God. So the picture here is not us gritting our teeth or flexing every spiritual muscle in the hope to stand firm and not fall. No, our strength comes from holding on to the Lord who just so happens to be the one who's actually holding on to you as you are holding on to him. It's this weird relationship of where we find our strength. We're commanded to put on the armor of God. We're commanded to stand firm in the Lord. But guess who's enabling you to stand firm? It's God himself. In fact, Jude 24 says this, 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Look, this, the source of our strength that enables us to stand firm is not found inside of us, contrary to every Disney movie out there. The source is found in God himself. And the ones that are able to stand firm are not the ones who are strong from the world's perspective, but it's the weak ones. It's the discouraged ones. It's the weary ones. It's the needy ones and the, the worn out people. Why? Because those individuals are not looking within. There's nothing there. They're looking up at God himself, who is the source of their strength, enabling them to stand firm so that they can say, along with the psalmist in Psalm 31, verse 4, be strong, let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. So we stand firm in God, who is the source of our strength. So we have to be watchful, we stand firm, and now thirdly, we be courageous and strong. Now, I'm, I'm combining these two commands that are found in the second half of verse 13 because they go together. Now, most translations of verse 13, you'll read something like, act like men. This phrase here is only found in the New Testament. But this phrase also appears in the Septuagint. Now, you don't need to know what the Septuagint Septuagint is, it's, it's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in the Septuagint, this phrase appears, but the way it's translated is it says, be of good courage. And so it has this idea of courage. As Paul's writing this, the men there at the time had courage. So he's in act like men, be men of courage, be people of courage. But as it's being written there throughout the Septuagint, it's always used in reference to maturity and strength. And I think those two ideas go together, courage, and then you've got maturity and strength. If you think about a child for a moment who tends to be weak and immature, they're not always courageous. They tend to be quite fearful. But a mature person, a strong person, tends to be courageous. Paul is telling us you should be courageous, strong, grown up, and mature. And as we've seen, this is something the Corinthians struggled with. They were not courageous. They were not strong. They were immature and weak. They were giving in to the temptations around them and the pressures from this world. We've seen evidence of this throughout 1 Corinthians. We provide two. Chapter 14, verse 20, Paul says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. And then chapter 13, verse 11, he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. That's what Paul wants them to do. In fact, one commentator described the condition here in Corinth this way, that the Corinthians have been tolerant when they should have been strict and intolerant or uncharitable when they should have been manly enough to make allowances for those who were less robust they had not always been alive to their risk and to their responsibilities. The military nature of the metaphors here suggests a situation of danger 
that requires them to be vigilant, strong, and valiant to withstand the attacks of the power of darkness. Look, I, I cannot echo Paul's exhortation here to the Corinthians strongly enough for us today, that as Christians, as men and women who are following Jesus in 2021, we must be men and women of courage, that we must have a resolve that no matter how unpopular it gets, no matter what it costs us, no matter what direction culture continues to go, we need to be people of the Bible, standing on the authority of God's word. And listen to me, it's going to take courage to do that. It's going to take courage to, to not falter, to, to not be tolerant of that. We need to stand upon the word of God. Look, parents, as we raise our kids, you're, it's going to take courage to raise your children according to the word of God that oftentimes goes against the culture around us. You need to be courageous. Look, we all need to be courageous as we face temptations on a daily basis to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. That takes courage because that's hard to do. I love A.W. Tozer. He's famous for saying that a scared world needs a fearless church, needs fearless Christians who have courage and boldness and clarity of how to live the way that God has prescribed for us to live. Proverbs 28.1 says that the righteous are bold as lions. I love that, and we need to be reminded of that because I think there are far too many Christians who have one foot in the world and one foot in Christ. And it's because of a lack of courage. That's actually easy to kind of find their, themselves okay over here in the church world, okay here in the world, because underneath that, they just want to be liked, just want to be accepted by both groups. They, they, they don't want to look weird or odd or to stand out in any way. And yet the reality is, church, we are weird. Like we're, we're bizarre people. Like we... We are not trying to fit into the world. Peter calls us the set-apart ones. We're holy. We're different than the world. Like, church, for goodness sakes, think about the message that we believe in for a moment. Just stop and think. I know that if you've grown up in the church, this is part of what you believe, but think about the Bible, for instance. We actually believe that the Son of God left heaven, came down, and was born as a baby. And not just that, but was bo- his mother was a virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit. Like, what? That's, that's a strange message. And it gets even weirder as he, he grows up, how the Son of God grows up. Like, that, that's weird, that's strange. And then he gets up on a cross, and he dies the death of a criminal, even though he didn't do anything wrong. But he, he's dying for his enemies, that makes no sense at all. Like him dying for sinners like you and me, that's weird, but it gets stranger. He doesn't stay dead. <laughs> okay, well, so he, he's dead, okay, three days, in the, and then he raises to life three days later. That's crazy. 
And then he hangs out with his followers for a few weeks, and he tells them, hey, guys, um, I'm actually going to be leaving you. I'm going to go back up to heaven, but, but don't worry, because you're going to receive this person called the Holy Spirit who's better than me in my physical presence here, because he's going to live inside of you. Okay, so God's living inside of me now, like this spirit, like that's crazy. And then he says, yeah, and, and don't worry, take courage, because I'm going to come back. I'm not going to tell you when exactly, but the sign of my return, I'm going to come back on a horse in the clouds, wearing a white, white robe. My eyes are going to be like fire. I'm going to have a sword coming out of my mouth and a hardcore tattoo on my thigh that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's what we believe. <laughs> That's the message of the gospel that we say yes and amen. I stake my life on that. And so let me encourage us. Let's stop pretending as if we're not different than the culture around us. We are. We follow and we live for a king who died and raised back to life and is reigning overall. And, and, and I just want to challenge us this morning with this point of, I, I just wonder, in what ways do you need to be courageous and strong to follow what God has said in the Bible that might go against what culture is saying, that might go against what other people in your life are saying, that goes against the temptations in your life to say, I believe in this book. Because you know where courage comes from, right? Like, courage is created when you are convinced, when you believe that what you are going through, what you are facing, is worth what you will receive if you persevere. And so the question is, for the godly, mature Christian, do you believe that resisting temptation, resisting worldly acceptance, resisting approval of man is worth the benefit of walking in obedience to Jesus Christ? Is it worth it to you? We need to be strong and courageous. Well, the last step here of instructions on spiritual maturity found in verse 14 is to be loving, to be loving. Paul says, let all that you do be done in love. Love has been a major theme throughout this letter, and it was needed. We have seen this because love is what will silence the Corinthians quarreling that plagued this church Love is what will pour out balm into the wounds of the Corinthians' divisions and their lawsuits and, and their elevating their own personal rights above others. Love is what should drive their spiritual gifts and how they use them. Love should motivate them to, to resist eating food that was dedicated to idols because of other people's consciences. Love should shape how they conduct themselves when, when they're gathered for worship and how they, how they partake of the Lord's Supper. And love is the key for all the sin that was in this church. And there was a lot of sin. This was a, a church that was a beautiful mess, just like every church is, because love is what covers 
a multitude of sin. That as a Christian, it is, it is impossible to hold a grudge against someone else, to be bitter towards someone, to be resentful towards someone if you actually follow this command to love. In other words, there's, there's really no category in the Christian life where you have forgiven somebody, but yet you're still holding a grudge against them. There's no category of moving on from a past grievance and yet still being bitter towards that person. That's not love. And this is important. Verse 14 is, is so significant because this isn't just the last step in the instructions on being spiritually mature. This isn't icing on the cake. This isn't an, an add-on. Paul's tacking this on. No, but this step here is what makes all of the other steps actually result in spiritual maturity. Like in other words, if you're watchful, if you're standing firm, if you are courageous and strong, but you're not loving, that's not going to result in spiritual maturity. And you might say, wow, that's a bold claim, pastor. Well, that's actually one of Paul's main points throughout this letter. Paul has been emphasizing time and time again that it's love that matures us. Chapter eight, verse one, knowledge puffs up, but love is what builds up. Love is what matures us. Or chapter 13, the love chapter, Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is what matures us, but I love this because there is a beautiful balance here in these two verses. Like if you just have verse 14 without verse 13, that's going to lead you into a sloppy, sentimental tolerance. But if all you have is verse 13 without verse 14, that's going to lead you into a type of militant, legalistic, rigid dogmatism. And church, we need both, 13 and 14, to hold in beautiful tension. That's a spiritually mature Christian who's able to say, I'm going to be watchful, but be loving. I'm going to stand firm, but to stand firm in love. I'm going to be courageous and strong, but I'm going to be, I'm going to be motivated by love. In fact, I think even a spiritually mature Christian is going to recognize which way they lean, which way they, they tip. If you tip towards verse 13 or, or verse 14, and they're able to self-correct and marry both verses. So again, the result is being a watchful, steadfast, courageous lover, exactly like Jesus. Look, I, I just want to finish by encouraging you with something today. I want to encourage you, when it comes to verses 13 and 14, you will have days and seasons of your life in which you fail miserably in verses 13 and 14. I know it doesn't sound encouraging at first, but you will be inconsistent, 
you will in an unhealthy way be leaning towards verse 13 or verse 14 in perhaps even destructive ways. But let me encourage you with this, is that there is one person who perfectly displays all four of these characteristics with perfect consistency. And he not only displays them perfectly, but he can empower you through his strength to display these in and through him, and his name is Jesus. That Jesus Christ was watchful as he lived his life on the earth, as he resisted all the temptations, lived a sinless life, that Jesus was able to stand firm against the attacks from the religious leaders and even Satan himself. And in the wilderness for 40 days, he was tempted, he resisted, he stood firm. That Jesus was courageous and strong as he endured the cross, the agony and the pain of dying for sinners. He persevered with courage and Jesus is loving. Oh, how loving he is. So many examples I could share of how he's been loving even in the Gospels, one of my favorite examples of Jesus' love is after the resurrection, before the ascension, he's having a conversation with Peter on the beach over breakfast. And this is right after Peter denied him three times, turned his back on Jesus. Jesus is having this conversation where he is forgiving Peter, reinstating Peter, loving Peter, and empowers Peter to be a leader in Jesus's church. That's love, that's grace, that is forgiveness. And church, the, the greatest way that Jesus has displayed his love for you is on the cross. He died in your place, he died for sinners so that you could be forgiven. Look, the cross is a declaration of love. So look, if you're here this morning and, and you're struggling with these four commands, these four instructions on being spiritually mature, look to Jesus. If you're struggling, you want more clarity, how do I live these out better? Look to Jesus. If you want motivation and power and inspiration to live these out, look to Jesus. Don't look within. Look up at him.